and welcome to the Net Positive Podcast. I am your host, Ted Flanagan, and for this episode, we'll be joined by Joel Levin. He's the Executive Director of Plug In America. Hey, Joel, welcome. Welcome to the Net Positive Podcast. How are you today? I'm great. Uh, thanks for having me today, Ted. Well, I'm really, I'm really pleased. Really great to see you, and it'll be great to talk to you about your career. And but before we do that, where where did you grow up? Where, where was home when you were a kid? Um, I grew up in the San Fernando Valley uh, in Sherman Oaks, um, and I I still live in Los Angeles. Although I've had a number of adventures along the way, and haven't always lived here. But um, living in the center of LA as an adult is a really different experience than uh, you know growing up in the valley. It's kind of a different yeah, well, place. Well, the valley was uh, was pretty polluted back then, right? It was actually. I have really strong memories uh, uh, in high school. I, I used to do some running of like going for a run in high school in the summer um, under the sort of brown, smoggy skies, and just coming back, just wheezing and puffing in a way that yeah, you don't really see now. I mean, LA is far from perfect, but it's a lot cleaner than it was, you know, 40 years ago. And was it clear at the time that that was related to cars and smog? Um, I don't know. I was in high school. I, I don't remember thinking too hard about what the cause was, but, but it was, you know, clearly, I mean, California, uh, I mean, the whole science of smog and air quality developed in California. California has been, they've been aware of pollution since the 1950s. And they've been regulating it since the 50s or maybe even earlier. And the whole technology was developed here. People didn't know what caused smog and, and California figured that out. And they've been world leaders on uh, addressing air quality since that time and always pushing the envelope on trying to make the skies cleaner and cleaner. And as we have, you know, 40 million people living in our state and, you know, more continue to come here. The only way that this can be uh, a pleasant place to live with increasing numbers of people is to always push the envelope on, on clean air and electric vehicles are just part of that story. They're like the, the latest iteration of, of California pushing for clean technology for on air quality. Yeah, well put. And and Mike Peavy, who was the president of the PUC for 12 years, who's president of Edison, he was also on this podcast and talking about his book, which is called California Goes Green. I don't know if you've ever seen it, Joel, but it's a great history. In fact, Diane Wittenberg is a, a co-author, uh, but it's a great history of how California took this leadership position with the, with the environment, much out of necessity. Uh, and, and great stories about not even understanding where, where the smog came from. What, what is this? You know, what's causing it? Before it was really clear that transportation was such a big piece of the equation. But what were you, when you were a little kid, what were, what were you into? I was into sports. Ice hockey was my thing. What was your thing when you were a kid? I was into camping. Uh, I was, uh, was in the Boy Scouts and uh, we did a ton of camping and I loved the outdoors and getting up in the mountains and backpacking and camping and stuff like that. And then, and then off to Berkeley for undergraduate and you also have an MBA from Berkeley you have two degrees from Berkeley, right? Yes. Yeah. So I, I went there for undergrad and then uh, I moved to Washington DC and I, I got a master's in economics and Russian studies from uh, Johns Hopkins and uh, worked on Capitol Hill for a while, 
uh, lived overseas for a while. I lived in Eastern Ukraine for a year and a half and we could do a whole separate podcast on that part of my life and how that's affecting me right now. But, um, yeah, lived there for a long time and, and then, um, moved back to California to get my MBA in Berkeley and then ended up moving to LA to, to work for the, um, California Climate Action Registry and now for, for Plug in America. Yeah, I was, I was interested as I looked at your bio to, to realize that you, that you had Russian studies in your, in your resume, which is, uh, a new, what, now what, prom, what, what was it that drew you to that? What drew me to Russian studies? Well, um, you know, I, I grew up in the Reagan era uh, when Russia was the evil empire. And so I guess I figured if Ronald Reagan said it was an evil empire, there must be something really interesting there. Um, so I, I was always kind of drawn to it in a, a sort of, uh, you know, a contrarian kind of way. Yeah, that's very, that's fun. That's fun. So now it's been, which is, it shocks me, but it's been over six years that you've been at Plug In America. Is that, is that right? Are we almost seven years at this point? Yeah, that's right. I started in uh, 2015. And, and, and talk a little bit about Plug, plug In America. I love the, I love the phrase that I, that I read somewhere on, on your website. I think that, you know, the point is to build the national consumer voice for EVs. But is that, a, is that a close to the mission statement or, or how would you describe the organization? How do you describe the organization? Yeah, no, that's right. That's how we see ourselves, the, the national consumer voice for, for EVs. And we're, we're a membership association of electric vehicle drivers um, from around the country. And our goal is really to accelerate the rollout of EVs uh, powered by clean energy in a way that benefits the public, benefits consumers. So while we work really closely with automakers, utilities, charging networks, people like that. At the end of the day, our goal and our kind of litmus test for our work is like, does this benefit consumers? Is this advancing the market in a way that helps consumers? I was thinking about it. Uh, are you limited to passenger vehicles? Uh, or now with Ford's F-150, are you, getting into, are you getting into pickups and maybe light and medium duty trucks? And then ultimately bus buses and i mean i guess i've seen evs even defined or planes and trains that are electric this is defined as evs but where do you draw the line there joel right so the the sort of broader phrase that people use a lot of times is te or transportation electrification uh, so you hear utilities use that phrase a lot and it's the idea that you want to electrify everything you want to electrify all transportation including, you know, airplanes and ferry boats and, and everything else. Um, we, in, you know, broadly speaking, I think our mission probably includes all those things. Um, because we're an association of EV drivers, we've really focused on light duty vehicles. I mean, that's kind of what we're good at, what we know the most about. Um, so we were supportive of, of transportation electrification broadly. Um, and we dabble in other things, but but mostly we focus on like cars and light duty trucks. But we're we're supportive of like e-bikes and um, e-scooters and and trucks and and you know other modes of transportation as well. We just it's it's not where our expertise lies and where we devote most of our time. Yep. Um, 
the history of, of your organization. I, I read a little bit. Um, let, let's just correct me, correct me here or clarify. Early 90s, in the early 1990s, the California legislature created some of the first zero emission mandates for vehicles. General Motors and others rolled out vehicles, the GM Impact, I think it was originally called, turned into the EV1. And then what, in the early 2000s, like maybe just 10 years later, all those vehicles, most of them were rounded up and scrapped. And the, and the automakers uh, lobbied against the electric vehicle movement. Is, is that about right? Uh, yeah, basically that's what happened. So as I mentioned, California has always uh, tried to push the envelope on technology, on finding out what's the, what's the latest and greatest technology for, for cleaning up the air. And in the late 90s, there was a lot of research uh, on producing electric cars actually going on at UC Davis and, and other places. And it became clear to CARB that it was possible to produce electric cars uh, that had no tailpipe. And they thought, well, duh, you know, this is, this is where we should go if we're trying to clean up cars. And so uh, they came up with this rule uh, in the late 90s called the ZEV mandate, the Zero Emission Vehicle Mandate, and said, if you're going to sell cars in California, a certain percentage of them have to be a ZEV, a zero emission vehicle, which basically meant electric cars. It also included hydrogen. Um, but, you know, as you know, hydrogen is a pretty small fraction of the market. And manufacturers had to produce a certain percentage of ZEVs every year, and it ratcheted up over time. And so when they first put that rule out, uh, a number of the manufacturers complied and they produced some ZEVs. The EV1 is the sort of most famous of them from, from General Motors. And um, they put them out in kind of small quantities and people were really excited about them. People bought these cars and thought, wow, this is, there's something really great here. Um, but the, they didn't really, their hearts weren't in it. They, they didn't, for the manufacturers, they didn't really want to be doing it. So they, they produced a few of them as compliance cars. They leased them. They never, they didn't sell any of them. And so they leased a few of them. And then they went back to the state and they said, you know, nobody wants to buy these cars. We're having a really hard time selling them. Of course, they make it extraordinarily difficult to even get your hands on one. Um, and so then the Air Resources Board backed off. They believed them and, and they sharply scaled back the regulation. And so then the manufacturers stopped leasing them. And as the leases came up, they took the cars back um, and they crushed them. And the uh, consumers who had bought them were really, really upset. They were really upset that they had discovered this thing that was uh, got them off of oil. It was more fun to drive. It was clean and that they couldn't keep it, that they were being forced to give them back to the manufacturers. And there's there's a lot of stories of uh, EV1 drivers that, you know, people from G GM would like send them a letter and say, if you don't give us our car back, you're, we're going to see you in court. Um, and then, you know, they show up with a tow truck and the people like go hide in the bathroom. And like eventually uh, they all gave them back uh, under threat of, of litigation from, from GM. Um, there's actually uh, an apocryphal story uh, about Francis Ford Coppola that um, they say that he was the only one who managed to keep his car because, uh, you know, he was less afraid of, of 
GM than other people. And I actually got the chance to, to meet him recently. And I asked him about that story. And he said, well, it's only partially true. They, uh, GM agreed to let him keep it, but he had to disable it so that it couldn't drive anymore. So I, I believe he still has it, um, but it but it doesn't function. And there's a handful of EV1s that still exist uh, in a few museums. Uh, there's one in the Peterson Museum, uh, just a few blocks from here. Uh, there's one in the, the Henry Ford in Dearborn, Michigan. And I think there's a couple of others scattered around the country, but none of them operate. Um, and so there were a number of other cars as well. But, but uh, yeah, so they were all taken back. Um, actually, the exception is the RAV4. Uh, Toyota made a, a deal with a, a few people were able to keep their electric RAV4s, and, and a number of those are still on the road. So um, then there was a long stretch after that from about, I don't know, 2002 or 2003, um, when there were no EVs on the road at all, basically, other than conversions. Um, and then Tesla came around, <clears throat> and Tesla produced the Roadster which came out in 2008, I believe. Um, and so during this whole period, the, the people that had their cars taken, taken away were really upset and they did a lot of protesting and street theater and, and complaining to anybody who would listen. And they formed a, a movement called Don't Crush, about, you know, don't crush our EVs uh, that eventually morphed into Plug in America. Um, and it was all documented in the film, Who Killed the Electric Car, which um, it's a great, great story. If you want to find out where EVs come from, it truly, uh, you know, it, it, it all comes out of, out of that movement. And so Tesla appeared uh, in 2008 with the Roadster. And then um, in 2011, then the, the first of the kind of modern generation of EVs came out, uh, the Volt the Nissan Leaf and the Tesla Model S, all of which are still on the road. There's you know, many thousands of them. I myself drive actually two of those cars, the Volt and the Leaf. When I first came to LA, I had to work for Los Angeles Department of Water and Power. I was the director of energy efficiency. And we had, I can't remember if it was six or seven or eight of the EV1s. And I drove one all the time and, and loved it. It was just a fantastic car. So what a what an amazing history, but out of all that, all, all that strife of the EV owners, uh, up comes plug, plug in America. And it sounds like some of the, the huge um, wins for plug in America as a trade association. Well, the, the, the tax credit, I guess in 2009, you lobbied for and got a, what, $7,500 tax credit for EVs. Uh, and then another thing that you, you all did, and I know this predates you, but uh, allowed um, plug-ins and, and uh, plug-in hybrids and EVs to use the carpool lanes or the HOV lanes in California. Are there other big uh, policy initiatives that you would say were equally important? Sure. I mean, the, so I, I want to correct you on one thing. I, I wouldn't call us a trade association. I think of a trade association as a group that represents businesses in a particular industry, and we, we really don't. We represent consumers. So. Um, not, not exactly a trade association. But that's what, would you, what would you call it? A consumer organization? A consumer group. Yeah. Okay. Sorry. Yeah. That's all right. Um, you know, the state of California has, has really uh, developed a whole, uh, a whole portfolio of laws to promote EVs over the years. Um, certainly the, the ZEV mandate has come back with a lot of teeth and it's been very, very effective. 
uh, in California. Um, the state has invested a lot in EV charging infrastructure and in a variety of programs. So I, I think we've had uh, many wins over the years um, with uh, on, on EVs. Uh, in addition, the federal tax credit obviously was was huge. You know that, that really was was very formative. Um, the um, the infrastructure bill that was passed last November, um, I would say we we uh, we worked really really hard on getting funding for EVs into that. So there's seven and a half billion dollars uh, in place in the federal infrastructure bill to create a national EV charging network, um, and that's that's rolling out now. And that's something we pushed for very very hard. So I can't say we did it alone, but but certainly I, I count that as a win for us. And we're actively involved on a like daily basis with Department of Energy, Department of Transportation, as those rules roll out to make sure that they really meet the needs of consumers and they create a, a really positive, um, easy charging experience for consumers. And well, I think we'll start to see the first of those chargers like in the ground before the end of the year. And, and I, I love this notion that every 50 miles of highway on the major, on the major highways in America will be a charging station. So you're never having to freak out and thinking you're going to run out of a charge. Yeah. So our our mantra with that, uh, which we pushed really hard, and I, I think the federal government really picked up on, is the notion that charging your EV should be at least as easy as buying gasoline, uh, or if not easier. There's some ways it can be easier. And um, not that I'm a big advocate of buying gasoline, but I would argue that gas stations have done a pretty good job of making it a a consumer-friendly experience when you buy gas um, in that you can, if you've got any major credit card, you can pull into any gas station in the country and you know 100% of the time they'll take your card. You don't, you don't have to wonder about it. You know that there will be multiple pumps there. Um, most of the time, there'll be not much of a line, you know, where you can pull up to a pump, so they'll be working. Uh, the price will be posted uh, you don't have to guess what you're paying for gasoline ever. Um, there's generally, you know, snacks and things that you can buy. There's restrooms. Um, so it's a, it's a pretty easy experience from the perspective of a consumer. Um, and if you're an EV driver right now, um, if you're a Tesla driver, you're set because the Tesla network, people are pretty happy with it. But for all the non-Tesla drivers, the EV network is, is kind of scattershot. You know, it's, it's a mixed bag uh, when you pull up to a charger, you don't know if it's going to work and you don't know if you'll, if they're going to require you to be part of their little network or if you, if they'll take a credit card. And so we just want a uniform coast to coast experience. And I, in terms of the initial guidance that's come out, um, on, uh, on this federal funding, I think they've, they've done a pretty good job with that. So as you mentioned, uh, the requirement is, um, charging at least every 50 miles, which is, you know, similar with, with gas stations. You rarely have to go over 50 miles between gas stations. Uh, the chargers can't be more than a mile off the highway. Uh, there have to be at least four chargers that are at least 150 kilowatts uh, of charge. Um, and they should be CCS, which has become kind of the, the standard for, for uh, most people, uh, except for leaf drivers like myself. But, you know, we'll get over that. Um, so the, and they, they haven't specified the payment standard, but, but I think they're probably going towards requiring 
uh, that they accept credit cards. So I, I think they're they're moving towards a, a pretty consumer friendly experience. Talk about National Drive Electric Week. Uh, I know that the pandemic has probably thrown a wrench into that into that for the past couple of years. But before that, it sounds I mean it's just, it got really really big, and that's a that's a plug in America initiative uh, with Sierra Club and others. Yes. So um, it was founded in 2011. So we've been doing it for a really long time now. Um, and uh, we started it with Sierra Club and Electric Auto Association. And uh, EV Hybrid Noir has recently come on as a, as a uh, national host as well. And um, the, the notion is that the best way to explain EVs to people to really get them to get people to understand it is if someone has the opportunity to test drive a car and then talk to a real EV driver about their experience in that car, experience of, of, of living with and owning an EV and that, that, that converts skeptics into drivers that you can talk to people about EVs all day and they're like, and they may be like, well, either they think it's a golf cart or it's a super luxury car that they can never afford or some, some combination of the two somehow. Um, but when, you know, people get to sit in a, a real EV and drive it around the block and find out that it's a really great driving experience and then talk to a driver about all of their questions, you know, do you run out of charge? Uh, how far does it go? Can you charge in the rain? Does it catch fire? You know, all the kind of um, illusions that people have. and people walk away from it and they're like, wow, you know, I get it. And we see every October, there's a big bump in EV sales uh, in the US, we think because of, of Drive Electric Week. And the, the sort of miraculous thing about it is that the events are, we're, we're a small organization in terms of our actual, you know, staffing. The events are all put on by volunteers and partner organizations. Um, we, uh, so 2019 was the last year we really had a full-blown event. There were 326, I think, events across all 50 states um, in pretty much any city of any size. And we have a tiny little staff that supports this. So it was all, um, you know, car clubs and environmental groups and cities put on a lot of them and um, utilities and uh, individual um, EV activists that just have a real passion for this. There's plenty of people I know who've been putting on Drive Electric Week events for years. And every year they'll like take like two weeks off of work and organize their event, and, you know, have hundreds or sometimes thousands of people come to these events. And they're just like, just built on, on like people's passion. And, you know, every year we'll have events pop up in some place where we've never had one before. And they're like, where did that come from? How, who, who is this guy? And it's like someone who been to an event and thought it was great and decided to put one on, you know? So there's, it's, it's kind of grown like wildfire. Congratulations. That, that's fantastic. Talk about the, the variety of cars that are on the, or EVs that are available now and that are coming onto the market. I mean, every, seems like every automaker now is rolling out an EV. And is this, is this happening faster than you expected it would? Or did you, or did you sort of expect this to be taking off like this? Or it's, it's, it's fantastic, the variety now available. The variety is remarkable. Um, I actually was just uh, looking on uh, plugstar.com actually this morning. That's our, our website that uh, has, shows all the EVs on the market and you can sort by the different EVs. 
Um, and there's now 80 vehicles as of today, um, 80 different uh, battery electric cars and plug-in hybrids uh, that you can choose from. And it, I think it's safe to say pretty much every manufacturer has at least one. Most of them probably have more now. Um, and there's a ton more coming out. There's a number that have come in the market just in the last month. Um, and so uh, it's, um, yeah, it's very gratifying to, to see it. It took a, a while to get here, but it's, it's really accelerating really rapidly. And the ranges are getting longer and longer too. You know, um, uh, the typical range now is between like 250, 300 miles. And there's ranges up to, you know, the new Lucid has like 500 miles of range. They're sort of like the, the top end of the market for right now. When I uh, bought my Leaf in uh, 2015 or 20, beginning of 2016, it had 85 miles of range. And that was pretty much the standard at that point, um, my, my 2015 Leaf. But um, the technology has changed so radically, you, you can't, can't buy an EV today that has 85 miles range. I mean, they just, they, they don't exist. And that's really because um, battery prices, uh, the battery technology is just uh, improving almost month by month with batteries getting cheaper and denser and more powerful. And so every year or two in any given model, the manufacturers will like tear out the battery and put a new one in that's more powerful uh, and go and smaller and, and um, you know, not really change the prices generally just because um, the, um, you know, the technology is improving like that. Um, Bloomberg did a study that um, that they think the, the price of, so since 2011, when the, the first modern EVs came in the market, uh, battery costs have been decreasing about 15% a year and that's continuing. Um, and so they forecast that probably, you know, a couple of years from now, maybe about two or three years from now, they'll reach price parity with gas cars. Because with an EV, you, you rip out all of the, the drivetrain from a gas car, all those, you know, hundreds and hundreds of moving parts. And you basically just put in, you know, an electric motor that lasts almost forever and a battery, a big expensive battery. And as that battery gets cheaper and cheaper, the cost of the car gets cheaper and cheaper because that's where the, most of the expense is. And eventually, you know, actually not very long from now, EVs are going to be cheaper than gas cars to produce. And so then you'll have this car that's cheaper to produce, cheaper to fuel, cheaper to maintain because there's hardly any moving parts, more fun, good for the environment, um, good for the economy, because instead of, you know, running on imported fuel that basically funds war and corruption overseas, you're, you're running on locally produced electricity that basically pays for local jobs. So it's kind of a win-win all around. And like I said, and pretty soon on top of everything else, it's going to be cheaper to buy. Not very long from now. I think Plug In America, that that consumer group, uh, did a good job hiring you, Joel, to be a, the spokesperson. You're very eloquent and make a great case, of course. I have a, just a clarifying question. The 80, that the, the we talked about the variety of EVs, uh, and you mentioned 80. And those are that that is a combined number between plug-in hybrids, like the Volt with a V for Victor, right? And all electrics. And do you think that, um, you, I, I'm under the impression that the plug-in hybrid is going to go away. And maybe as battery prices get 
lower and lower, the power, battery power density gets greater, the prices get lower, we have that EV charging network totally built out. There won't be a need for the plug-in hybrid. Is that right? Or, or do you see that maintaining a niche in the market? You know, it's a great question. Um, and there's smart people on both sides of that. And so there was, there was a moment a couple of years ago uh, when, particularly when GM discontinued the Volt with a V, that people thought, oh, this is it, plug-in hybrids, this is, this is the end for them. Um, but there's actually a bunch of uh, new plug-in hybrids that have come out recently. Um, our, our thinking is that it, it depends, in terms of the benefit for the environment uh, and the value of it, it really depends on the range. So a typical American drives 30, 35 miles a day. And if a plug-in hybrid goes at least that far, so if you have a plug-in hybrid that goes 35, 40 miles, um, you can go for months and not buy gasoline, you know? Um, but when you need to go on a road trip, it's, it's there. Um, the the short-range plug-in hybrids are not very valuable and not very useful, I would say. And people tend to be kind of dissatisfied with them. So there's some of them that go like 15, 16 miles on a charge. And it turns out when people buy those, a lot of times they don't even plug them in. It's just a car, just a gas car. Um, so I would think those are probably going to go away because it's not really worth it to have this whole separate drivetrain. Uh, the longer range ones, I you know I think they they may be around. I think there could be kind of a, a niche for that. They're technically um, a lot more complex because you've got two separate drivetrains, so it makes them heavier. Um, but you've got the full gasoline drivetrain and then you've got the whole electric drivetrain. Um, so there's kind of more to break and they're more expensive to produce. You don't have that um, economic benefit like with a, with a battery electric that like as the batteries get cheaper, the whole car gets cheaper. With a, with a plug-in hybrid, you still have you know, that extra drivetrain there. So the economics... Uh, um, may not be that compelling to produce them. I think that's probably why GM, for example, made the decision that, you, you know, I never talked to anyone from GM about this, but that would be my guess that at a certain point they, they decided that it would be hard for them to really make money on plug-in hybrids versus EVs as the batteries get cheaper. I think there's probably a pretty good margin in there to make some money. Uh, would be my guess. So that's and just really to clarify, of those, of those 80, how many do you think are, are full on EVs? Half? Um, I'd have to go check, but yeah, maybe half, maybe more. Maybe half. So what's the most challenging part of your, of your job right now in, in this move, movement, I'll call it? The most challenging part of my job? Um, you know, it's funny because we... Uh, I had this discussion with, uh, with our uh, staff and board a couple months ago um, after, you know, 21, 2021 was just a phenomenal year for EVs where sales doubled and, you know, we were, were close to 5% of the market, which is phenomenal compared to where we've been. And so we were sort of debating this question. So like, are, are we done in terms of, you know, EV promotion? Do we not need to do that anymore? And the conclusion we kind of came to is, no, it's actually going to get harder now because you're moving from the sort of early adopters who were really excited about the technology, really care deeply about the environment. And 
are willing to accept a little inconvenience so that if the charging experience isn't perfect and a little bit awkward, and if, you know, there's recalls on the cars and they have, you know, little bugs in them when they come out, um, they're willing to tolerate that. But now you're moving to kind of the early mass market as we're moving from 5% to 10, 15, 20% over the next, you know, year or two. And people that it's just a car, you know, it's just sort of the latest technology of car and their expectations are much higher and they're not going to, they're not going to tolerate um, any sort of like flies in the ointment in terms of uh, their driving experience. So their expectations are much harder. Uh, so I, I think that for the EV sort of the manufacturers and the charging networks and the, the folks like us that are trying to explain all this, I, I think it's, it's more challenging uh, as you're moving to sort of like regular Americans that, they, they want an experience that mimics at least or is better than the gas experience. So I think that's, that's a challenge that we're going to have over the next couple of years is sort of addressing this, this kind of much broader market. Yeah, that's very interesting. So how do you, how do you uh, personally, how do you keep balance? Are you getting off often hiking or biking or uh, what do you, what are you doing? I know you, I know you volunteer at your kid's school quite a bit. What, what else? How do you keep balance, Mr. Levin? Um, how do I keep balance? Yeah, I try to, I mean, you know, during COVID, we, we, we had an office and, um, we, we, uh, ended up giving up our office. So we're all, you know, completely remote right now. So it's, as you know, you know, you, you're working from home, it can be a little bit like, um, sort of, you sort of stuck in your hamster wheel. Um, so yeah, I try to get out. I mean, what, what really calms my mind is, is getting out into nature and, Fortunately, here in LA, we're, we're surrounded by mountains. And so I try to get out in the mountains every weekend um, or go biking uh, a little bit, a little dose of nature. And it sort of reminds me why I'm doing all this. Fun talking to you today. Really good, really good conversation. Thanks for all these perspectives and thanks for what you're doing. Thanks for what Plug in America is doing. Much appreciated. Thank you, Ted. It's a, it's a really exciting time to be doing this. It's really, I was, I was telling uh, one of my staff the other day, um, for Plug in America, we've been sort of operating in the, the, the shadows or sort of like, you know, you know, below the line for such a long time or, you know, for many years, going back to the, the who killed the electric car days, um, people were like talking about this technology and, and just no one paid attention to us. And it was just like some crazy people talking about this thing that's out in the future. And now... It, I, I mean, the president talks about it. I, I watched the State of the Union address last night. He made a reference to his 500,000 chargers that, that he wants to build. And so it's just like, it's just a thing. It's, it's like this big thing that is happening and all the automakers are really committed to it. And so for us as advocates that have been working on this for such a long time, it's, it, we're, we're sort of like the, the dog that was always chasing buses. And then like one day he caught a bus, you know? So it's like, wow, it's like suddenly everyone's buying into this thing we've been talking about for a long time. So like, what do we do? You know, so it's it's kind of an exciting moment to be like the dog that caught a bus. All right, carry on. Thanks again for this conversation. Good, thank you. That's it. Thanks for tuning in to this edition of The Net Positive. We'll see you next time.